Father, thank you for these guys for today, for the fun that we had, for the fact that I beat Danny and the rest of the guys in shooting. <laughs> thank you for um, just the stacks opening their homes for all of the guys and all of the ways that we've been served this weekend with breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and Jeremy and his leadership over this. But Lord, I just pray for this session. I pray as we get to focus once again on forgiveness. Just be with us, give us um, wisdom, give us humility, uh, give me clarity of thought and speech once again, and in your son's name, amen. Hey guys, you got to quit talking down there if you're going to be down there. Whatever, okay. Damien? Okay, it's funny. We can hear them, they can't hear us. I, a little uh, disclaimer to this session, and this is a, I kind of said this disclaimer at the first session, but I'm going to reiterate it. A part of this session, we're going to talk about emotions. You guys can't check out. You guys can't run away. Damien's going to block the door. Damien likes emotions. He cries more, more, than, more than any other elder. No, you can't go to the bathroom. But um, what we're, what we're going to demonstrate is obviously with forgiveness as we're dealing with this, emotions are, and dealing with kind of the hurt that we deal with, emotions are one of those things that we actually have to tackle. I want to start first by where has forgiveness gone? One of the reasons that this subject um, has been so intriguing to me is that if we look at the world and we look at kind of what we've gone through and what our culture has gone through and just kind of what the cycles of culture have gone through, one of the questions and things that we could kind of ask is, is where, is it, where has forgiveness gone? And even more than that, identify that there's been no room for forgiveness. I mean, just think, I just want to highlight a couple of these things. I'm not going to exegete them, but just kind of use them as a cultural um, understanding. Cancel culture. This idea that once you do something wrong, there's no coming back. People that did things, you know, horrendous things too. I'm not saying that what they did was right, but did things several decades ago, all of a sudden can be canceled at the moment from a mistake that was way back when. Um, there's this almost constant need for the atonement of sins. There's no language within culture for forgiveness. There's aggressors and then there's victims, but there's no victim that ever forgives the aggressor and no aggressor that ever stops um, being an aggressor. It's only aggressor and victim. There's no room for atonement. There's no room for forgiveness. One of the things that, um, as, as I was leading a Bible study a, a couple of years ago, we went through critical race theory. And this is one of these things that we identify that one of the issues with critical race theory is that there's no language for forgiveness. There's no way for somebody who did something wrong was an oppressor, to use that language, was the aggressor for them to forgive the victims only had to become aggressors or um, and, and kind of uh, overpower those people. Even the Me Too movement, we can see with this Me Too movement where it's, um, there is no room for looking at somebody who did, again, a horrendous thing. I'm not saying what they did was right, but look at them and say, what you did is wrong, but I forgive you. And I've even seen this within, within Christian cultures. One of the things that kind of as we were looking at the critical race theory, we compared two books. One of them was White Fragility. I forget whatever that lady's name was. That, that one. And she was, you know, it was very clear that if you were a white male, you were wrong. 
Problem is, we also read Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. He didn't have a lot of forgiveness in his either. And so on both sides, there's this language where once you are kind of in one line of thinking, there's no way for you ever to get out of that. So it really, for me, just brings up the, the understanding that forgiveness has been almost one of those um, swear words, if you will, in culture, but even at times in, in Christian language. This is something that, um, this was a, an article that I ran into as I was studying through this. It says all of these topics are looking at, with the cancel culture, critical race theory, me too, all this stuff, is looking at the guilt and shame found in this world. And we're all trying to figure out how to deal with that guilt and shame. That's been what this whole topic is about with forgiveness, how to deal with that guilt and shame. Here's, here's what one guy said. He, he wrote this article um, that's titled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. This is a secular article that's looking at the world. His name is Winfred McKay, and he says this. Those of us living in the developed countries of the world find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence under, understates the matter. Guilt has, has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into even more powerful and pervasive elements in the life of contemporary West. Even the richest language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and its means of containing its effect, let alone a obtaining relief from it has become even more elusive. And essentially what he goes on to say in this article, it's rather long and I had to buy it even when I had to find it because it was behind some paywalls. But essentially what he's looking at is the world has tried to deal with its guilt. But the way that it's dealt with its guilt is by trying to eradicate guilt, is by trying to take all standards off the table. And as Western society has taken those standards off the table, People aren't becoming less guilty, they're becoming more guilty. People aren't feeling their shame more, they're feeling, or their shame less, they're feeling it more. And so what this guy goes on to say is, we, where they are attempting to make life better by removing guilt, what's actually needed isn't the removal of guilt, but the presence of forgiveness. And so, again, it just has really highlighted the power of forgiveness. If you can think back to last night, what we looked at, Harvard Business, Psychological Mental Health Review, it's like, Forgiveness benefits, this is, you know, social psychologists are, are identifying, forgiveness benefits the person's life. And so there is a power that is underneath forgiveness. The world in, in its strange position, by taking guilt away, is feeling more and more like sinners, but they don't have a name for it. They can't pardon themselves. They can't absolve themselves of their sins. So they feel um, they, they need more moral absolution, forgiveness, but somehow they're unable to give it to them because they have no language of justice at all. They're just trying to get rid of their guilt by canceling it. Again, this is what, what uh, Keller says. I've quoted a lot from his book, so have fun reading that book, guys. He says this, Modern culture has done everything to say we don't need God. We don't need heaven. We don't need hell. We don't need moral categories. If anything, it has made it worse because our guilt now cannot be eradicated. We can't say, I don't believe in sin, I don't believe in guilt, because there's a voice inside of us that calls us cowards, calls us fools, calls us ashamed, makes it say that we're not living up. There's something going on. We can all look at everyone across the board in the church and out of the church and say, 
that we've experienced hurt and that hurt is real and, and unavoidable. That's the commonality with all humanity. That's actually, again, as, as I've, you know, I've said, one of my hearts of having this discussion is creating in us as men that, that goes first to our families and the next to our church and then our church, that creating this power where we can look at our fellow sinners. We can have a, we can have a commonality and, and a starting point and go, listen, I know that you've been hurt. I know that I've been hurt. Let me offer you absolution from that hurt. And that absolution comes in the sake of the gospel. Let me offer you that grace that's been given to me. And it's crazy because what the world wants to say is, let's just take all guilt away. What we say is, no, the guilt can stay. You need to feel that. Now let me give you an even greater power that's going to push out that guilt by the name of Christ. So this evening, what I want to do is I want to talk about the hurts that we've experienced, both from the positive and the negative. And I want to talk about how we deal with those hurts. Again, this is we're going to deal with some emotions. And I want to start by looking at Genesis 3. And obviously Genesis 3 is where hurts first started with the fall, with Adam and Eve. This is Genesis 3, 7 through 10. i got to pick this up some. It, this, it, this is what it says in Genesis 3. Then their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of, uh, of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid themselves. Adam and Eve, understanding their nakedness, also understood their vulnerability. When they understood their nakedness, they felt how exposed they were to God. And this was a brand new feeling at this time. They were just as naked before the fall, physically speaking, as they were after the fall. But what their sin brought to them was an understanding of how vulnerable, how exposed, how naked they actually were. And just consider the very first thing that they did when they experienced that nakedness. They tried to hide it. What we do with our shame and our guilt is try to hide it. But the way that they tried to hide it was insufficient because it was fig leaves of their own creation. They took fig leaves and made a covering for them. Now, what we looked at last session is the fig leaves that were necessary was a substitution of an animal. God made fig leaves that were, um, you know, uh, that were sufficient for their covering, but that was the death of an animal with, with, um, you know, with, Leather loincloths. Adam and Eve tried to make these these um, these loin these insufficient loincloths out of fig leaves, and what they were really afraid of at that moment was they recognized that God saw them for who they were. And in the element of forgiveness, that's one of the scariest things, because when we approach somebody and ask them, "Will you forgive me?" and when we even approach somebody and and rebuke them. And that is a very intimate moment because what we're saying is you see me for who I am and I have to ask you, if we're asking for forgiveness, I have to ask you to pardon me for something that is intimately connected to who I am. I don't know about you, but I, I struggle to do that. I struggle to admit my faults. I struggle to admit where I am weak. I struggle to admit those mistakes that I have. I you know, have spent my life and I think we all can, can uh, you know, agree to this trying to cover that shame, those vulnerabilities, those insecurities that we have. And so it's really difficult for us to say, 
this is who I am. But that's what's happening with forgiveness. When we're approaching somebody and we're saying, past their loincloth, if they will, past that covering to their guilt and shame. And it's that very intimate moment where two sinners, which is why we have to always keep in, you know, we, in this context, we have to remember that our horizontal forgiveness is um, empowered by our vertical forgiveness. But out of that horizontal forgiveness, we're looking at a fellow human saying, I can see that shame and that guilt. Adam and Eve had their eyes open and they knew that they had to cover themselves. They knew that they had to make fig leaves and we do the same thing. We spend our lives finding ways to cover up the radical, deep inadequacies that are inside of us. Again, I said, this would be emotional. You can, you can feel those on your own, kind of where you're sitting right now, but I know that about you. And you can know that about me. That we spend our lives trying to cover up the radical sense of deep inadequacies. And we do them through fig leaves. Some of them are, some of them are man-made to cover our guilt and our shame. And some of these things, we, we try in those moments when we are sinning, we try to cover the, the offense through trying to pay back and trying to reconcile ourselves. I mean, just think about some of the, the fig leaves that, that we can try to use to cover up that guilt and shame. Perfectionism. Our work. Holding on to our youth. A desire to have a, a deep need for approval. I think other people use moralism. They try to cover that sense of guilt and shame by trying to be as good and as close to perfect as they possibly can be. Fig leaves can be good things. They're just used in the wrong way. The issue wasn't the fig leaf with Adam and Eve. The issue is what they were trying to do with the fig leaf. So the question that we can, we can ask ourselves is, what happens when one of these fig leaves is exposed? What happens when somebody in our brokenness recognizes, hey man, you're using the wrong thing to try to cover your guilt and shame. How do we respond? I think the emotions that come out at that point is anger, because we're scared, is guilt, because we're ashamed, is frustration, because we wanna, again, try to hide, is pain, because they recognize what we know to be true, the fact that we are inadequate and we're trying to cover these things. But what happens when sin and loss and pain of a forgiven man is exposed? It's not pain and frustration, is it not? It's almost joy. Because the forgiven man, the truly forgiven man, has come to grips with the fact that he's forgiven from the lost. When something is exposed and not hidden, there's no guilt and shame around that exposure because they've dealt with it. Because they've come to understand, yeah, that's who I am. God sees that, I see that, and I've come to grips with that. But what can happen so often in life is we can think that we've actually come to a point of forgiveness. We think that we've understood even the way that God has forgiven us. And, and then when those sins, when that guilt, when that shame is exposed, we run to anger, we run to frustration, we run to, or that is a painful thing because we actually haven't come to grips with our forgiveness. When a forgiven man is exposed, it's joy because it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That, I was supposed to pay that debt and I've been forgiven that debt. 
oh yeah, I was supposed to suffer the consequences for that debt, but somebody else did. It, it puts them back into that, that joy that, of receiving the grace for the first time. I mean, just think about the joy that happened when you recognized for the first time that Christ paid for your sins. It's like that weight is lifted off your shoulders, is it not? Think of that joy, and, and I won't... Um, just think of that joy of when, when you've been hiding that sin for a long time. And then it's finally exposed. Then you and your wife finally have the conversation about it. Then you and your employer finally come to it. Then you and your friend finally have it. What relief. Because for the first time you're looking at your, just your spouse and you go, oh, you finally see everything about me and I get to have an honest conversation. Then the relief when your spouse goes, and I forgive that. And no longer is it something that we hide. And it's not something that, we're, you know, it is something we're ashamed of because it's a sin, but no longer something that we're, that, that we're trying to cover up with these fake fig leaves. Rather, it's something that, that, that we get to say, yeah, that was a part of my story. That was something I did. But look at the grace that I have received because of it. This is, um, I, that was way off topic of where I was going. When uh, this is, this is um, Philippians 3. This is 8 through 9. This is Paul describing who he is. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith not having a righteousness of my own. Again, if, we were, if we're relying on the fig leaves to cover up our guilt and shame, that's a righteousness that relies on us because Adam and Eve had to fashion those because we have to fashion those. What happens when you're no longer perfect? You're in shame. What happens when you break God's law, man's law, and you're no longer upholding that moral standard that you were so you know, trusting in? Well, you, you fall back on nothing. What happens when you have to recognize I am a broken sinner that recognizes my brokenness once again? You have nothing to fall back on. But Paul is going, listen, my righteousness is not mine because my, righteous, my unrighteousness has been forgiven. And the power that I have from forgiveness now comes from Christ. And I have received and been imputed a righteousness that is not my own, and my joy from life comes from that. So our continued joy comes from not having a righteousness that's from us, but rather a righteousness that's from God. I mean, again, think about how God immediately, once Adam and Eve revealed themselves in their fig leaves, he looked at them and said, that's not going to work. You need something better. You need a substitute. Here's where I, I want to go for the just rest of, of our time this weekend and in this session, I want to talk about some emotions surrounding forgiveness. Because one of the things that I've been convicted by is I think that I, that was, I, I, I believed a lie thinking that I had actually forgiven people when I really hadn't, thinking that I had dealt with the emotions appropriately when I really hadn't. But what I realized is as I was studying all this is that there were some deep-seated emotions 
that demonstrated to me that I had some work to do. And so I want to talk about the emotions surrounding forgiveness and specifically the emotions that precede forgiveness. And I want to talk about those emotions when we don't handle them appropriately. Now, we had a joke earlier with emotions of like the way that we like to handle emotions is just shove them aside and go, I don't have those. <laughs> like, legit, and I say that honestly, legit, Amy has had to ask me multiple times in our marriage, do you feel anything? I don't really, I'm not the touchy-feely type. I really don't, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I've had to work on, you know, kind of understanding emotions. But what I have recognized is that when I don't understand my emotions properly and when I don't handle my, those emotions, I'm negatively impaired by them. So I want to look at three specific emotions and talk about them and, and to demonstrate the need for us to identify them well and properly and for us to handle them well. The first is anger. Anger, if I could just describe this emotion, anger is the energy of desire. It's a willingness to reach for desire to be satisfied. It shows us, it even comforts us with what we care about. Now, I, I don't know about you. When I grew up, as I was growing up, there was no space for anger in my, in my world. When I thought of anger, it was always something to avoid. Like, don't be angry for anything because anger is wrong. But Jesus was angry. So anger can't be wrong because Jesus was angry. So what is anger? Well, anger, as I said, is that energy of desire. It shows us what we're jealous for and what we're passionate about. This is why, again, when Jesus walked into the temple and cleansed the, the temple, he was jealous for something. He was passionate about something. He was jealous for the Gentiles to have a space before God, that the Jews had used the court of the Gentiles as a marketplace. He was jealous for creating a space where all men, Jews and Gentiles, could come before the Lord and receive that grace. So he came in and he was angry for something. We have a hard time putting words to our anger. We have a hard time saying, this is what I'm jealous for. This is what I'm desirous of. Really what we're saying there is, this is what I'm angry for. And it's okay for us to recognize this is what I'm angry for. So often in forgiveness and in these elements of forgiveness, we're angry for something. We're angry for reconciliation to happen. We're angry for justice to take place. We're angry for a wrong to be made right. But we don't allow ourselves even the time to think about what am I angry for? You see, anger indicates a need to take responsibility for others' feelings. Through anger, we have an opportunity to tell the truth about what's really going on inside our hearts. Again, this is the scary thing with forgiveness, that, that intimate thing. Because if you or I actually have a legitimate forgiveness moment, that means that I've got to walk up to you and say, Danny, this is what my heart is saying. I just, you, I just, I'm picking on the elders. Dandy, this is what my heart is saying. This is what I'm angry for. This is what I'm jealous about. I've got to reveal my heart to you. I struggle to do that with Amy. How in the world am I going to do it with a fellow brother and sister? But here's the thing. When we don't recognize what we're angry for and, and when we allow anger to be negatively impaired, what it goes to, well, uh, it goes to depression. It goes to pride. It goes to depression because anger doesn't have a space to voice the hurt. So often you look at people and you're just like, they're depressed because 
something either immediate or way back when happened, and they just need to be able to say, this wasn't right. And in a broken world, it shocks me at times that I feel like it's wrong for me to speak up even about myself or others to go, this was not right. And when we don't allow space for that anger and when we don't allow space for that to um, work itself out in forgiveness, it can lead to depression, but it can also lead to pride. Because that pride and we just sit in that anger and go, well, look how better I am than that person over there. Look how better I am that I didn't make that mistake. Look how better I am that I wasn't the one who failed me in this marriage. It was my spouse. Look how better I am that you fill in the blank. Where really what needs to happen then is instead of allowing that anger to go to pride or depression, we need to speak up and go, I'm jealous for this to be reconciled. Can we have a conversation about it? Now, again, this is where I have to caveat this. We express our anger even understanding that we've already forgiven. So it does not come out in ruthless taunts of rage. It comes out with grace, but it's anger nonetheless. This is what I'm jealous for. I need you to know that. Second thing, hurt. Again, we like to put on the fig leaf of superiority and protection, right? We like to have our armor buttoned up real tight to make sure that no one sees the hurt that's deep down inside of us because it is frightening to be vulnerable enough to go, let me reveal the hurt that I'm dealing with. I think in some sense, men especially are expected to play hurt. And what I mean by that is you got to stay on your white horse. You got to stay doing your task, going to work, being the husband, being the father, being the all of the expectations we're expected to play hurt. I know as a pastor, I feel that. It's like there's times I'm like, Sunday's coming. Regardless of what's going on in my life and soul, I got to get up and preach. But hurt is one of the battles of forgiveness is to admit that we're hurt. And, and hurt exposes our neediness. Hurt exposes that we need help. Hurt exposes that we're naked. Hurt exposes that we're actually not as strong and protected as we make ourselves out to be. Hurt is the emotional and spiritual experience that tells us that we feel pain. But here's why I bring up this emotion. Because when hurt is negatively impaired, it turns to resentment. And resentment is damaging in all relationships. Here's how one guy said this is a this is from a um, an author by the name of Chip Dodd. Um, I've been reading his book recently and really appreciating it. It says this, Avoiding hurt renders us numb, and therefore numbs our hearts and the hunger for feeling in life, which comes through relationships. Resentment is the product of trying to find solutions after rejected hurt. When hurt is denied and minimized or projected onto another, it becomes resentment. And resentment, this is, these are not my words, it, Resentment builds up in our life because we're unwilling to say to another person, you hurt me and we need reconciliation. Think back to all of these emotions are really dealing with the first two things of forgiveness, exposing the offense and acknowledging the offense. We're all dealing with this. It's those are the two hardest things for us to actually say this is what happened. This is what this has cost me. But if we're not willing to go there, 
how in the world can we ever appropriately pardon it? And how can we actually have a reconciled relationship and a restored relationship if we're never able to look at, especially if it's a person close to us and go, this is how deeply that affected me. Third, <coughs> sadness. It's interesting as you're thinking of anger, you go to rage, hurt, you can go to um, protection and resentment, sadness. I don't think we're just, I don't, I don't think we as men, after hearing just the struggles of each other's lives, do we look at each other and go, I'm sad that that happened to you. Sadness is such a this basic emotion that we've lost in our, in our adult lives. They're just going, man, I'm so sad that that's a part of your story. I'm so sad that that situation happened. I'm so sad that you're struggling with that. I'm so sad that that person did that, said that, is doing that thing. Sadness is fundamental to a full life because it opens up the door of healing. However, if we can't acknowledge how much of what we've lost means to us, then sadness will deepen because the need to honor our losses with grief doesn't go away. Sadness allows us to look at our own personal losses and the losses of others and to grieve that with them. This is why, especially as you're looking back, I know in our first small group, Last night, we, we talked about what happens when maybe one of the things that needs to be forgiven comes is, is from a parent that has passed away. Like, you're never able to look at them and have that conversation and go, Mom, Dad, you did this to me. Or it's from a restrained relationship where somebody you're not able to have that conversation with. Sadness at least allows us to go, I hate that that is a part of my story. And then move on. Forgiveness is a very intimate experience between two parties. And this level of vulnerability that, even with sadness, that, that necessitates, scares us. We're used to covering ourselves up with these fig leaves. But forgiveness says this. This is the beautiful thing about forgiveness. It says, I see you for who you are and what you've done, and I forgive you. I see you for who you are and what you've done, and I forgive you. That's forgiveness. An honest account. You owe me $400 billion, and I see you as a debtor of $400 billion, and I forgive all of it. I mean, guys, that, I know that that's the parable around it, but you start to put meat on those bones of our lives that is an intimate moment, but that is a moment that just um, empowers us to move forward with joy. Because then we look at that person and go, you see me for who I truly am and was, and you forgave me. But what happens when sadness is impaired? Self-pity. Self-pity is, is a facade of false strength. It's also a way to deny access to to those with whom we have a relationship. We use self-pity to escape the pain of sadness by trying to make others feel sadness for us. I, I see this one in marriage all the time. Amy and I do stumble in it, but I see it with, with a lot of marriages. You know, we, when, when our, our wives, I've used that as the example because I've wanted to just stay close to home. 
when our wives do something that wronged us, that we're sad about, what's the easiest thing for us to do? Sulk around, right? Until our wives finally say, what's wrong? You haven't said much today. What's happening? Because we're unwilling to go, what you did there, said there, whatever there, made me sad. And instead of us valuing ourselves enough to go, hey, that shouldn't have happened. We sulk around and make them come to the point of valuing us because we can't value ourselves. So instead of processing, instead of the process of forgiveness, looking like us saying, hey, these are the emotions that I'm going through. This is the offense that has taken place. This is me acknowledging that we need reconciliation. We use, again, anger, sadness, and hurt to just run away and to not have that vulnerable conversation. So self-pity is a counterfeit forgiveness because, oh, this, sorry, this is the other thing it says, uh, self-pity is a counterfeit forgiveness because it really says, I made a mess of my life, but real repentance involves grief over sin instead and the offense of grief. And what can happen here with this counterfeit forgiveness is us saying, I need you to feel bad so that I can feel better. Now, I know I haven't used much scripture in this passage and in this lesson, and I want to go to Psalm 51. I don't think we would cover forgiveness well without going to Psalm 51, and I think obviously Psalm 51 with guys is close to our hearts. This is David's um, repentance to the Lord over his sin, but I, I want to point out this Psalm, this repentance, deals with sadness hurt, and anger well. David was not afraid of his emotions. David understood that his emotions were a part of him and he needed to run towards them in order to be healed and have reconciliation. So I, I just, I'm, I'm going to read through this and talk about it. The first thing we're going to hear is the sadness and hurt in his words. Just hear this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David didn't say, God, you don't know the stress on my shoulders and why I deserve to have another woman, even though he had multiple wives. God, you don't know how Bathsheba threw herself at me. God, you don't know how fill in the blank. He could have gone to so many other excuses. Instead, there is no self-pity. There's no resentment. There's no explaining away the problem. Instead, he just says, I did that. That's what happened. And God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, there could be a whole other thing, and we don't have time for that this evening, and a whole other thing to look at this and realizing that even though David's sin was definitely towards a human being, Bathsheba and Uriah, his major concern here is with God. So the other piece that we can talk about in all of this discussion, where are we, and I, this is kind of ridiculous even to say it this way, but where or how are we hiding our emotions from God? Where are we unwilling to look at God and say, I am angry for this, and you let this happen to me? 
I am sad that this is a part of my story. I am hurt that I have to deal with this. David goes to God and goes, I messed up. Then against you and you alone have I sinned. Verse, verse five, behold, it was, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with, hip, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. I mean, David is pleading for restoration because he knows it's a possibility. He's pleading for restoration because he, he knows a substitute can be given on his behalf for his sin and he can be restored. Just imagine that. I, I, again, I, I asked you guys to think about that situation or I knew that as, as we were talking, things would come to mind over these issues that you would have to be forgiven of. David did, in our minds, the unthinkable, right? Like, it's a low-hanging fruit for us not to fall into this trap. And yet he looks at God with boldness and says, forgive me. And he knows he will. 9 through 18. Again, just hear David's hurt. But instead of hiding his hurt, allowing his hurt to be impaired leading to resentment, anger leading to depression, sadness leading to self-pity, he turns to God and goes, you will forgive, and I can live in that joy. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Wonder what he's saying there? Then I will use my stupidity as an, as an illustration of the power of your forgiveness. Then I will teach other sinners the joy that can come from one sinner receiving forgiveness. That's, again, what all of this is about. Us taking the vertical reality of, of how God has miraculously forgiven us, and to spread that out horizontally to say, let me tell you about how amazing my God is because he saved me from my sins. Of course, I'm going to save you from your sins. And let me tell you, he's willing to save you from your sins also. That's exactly what is happening here. He is jealous, angry for forgiveness and knows that he will receive it. Just for the sake of time, because I told Tom that I, I would be done. I'm not going to read the rest of this psalm, but David knows that he did the unthinkable and he can run to God and instead of hiding who he is, instead of being afraid of exposure, being afraid of his nakedness, that he can come before God and receive the forgiveness that he desperately needs. Guys, I'll end with, there's more that I was going to cover, but whatever. You can, you can read the uh, Keller book or the book that uh, Jeremy got. I was going to go over a whole thing of what forgiveness is not, but we can leave that to a, a, another discussion. Guys, I'll just end where, where I began. My heart for us as these 20 men here this weekend, my heart for the church, is that what we can be known for is a community that understands the amazing grace that God has given us. And from that position, 
is jealous for, is angry for, that gospel being proclaimed indiscriminately, that forgiveness being offered to everyone. And what I am angry for is our church to be in a living and active illustration of the power of forgiveness. I'll pray. There's no small groups. I think Tom has to give some instructions on how to eat crawfish because I don't know how to. <laughs> and then we can eat. Lord, just thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment that we can come face to face with our need for forgiveness. Just be reminded of how broken we were and how gracious you have been. Yet, Lord, thank you that we, we like David, can be jealous for restoration and yet know that you have offered it. You freely offered it. But there's nothing we can do that you won't forgive us of. And that it has been paid for, all of it. The stuff that we have done to this point, the stuff that we, that we will do on the cross by Christ. Lord, use us. Use us to be testimonies of your glory in our homes, with our kids, with our wives, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our community. Lord, give us the joy, the anger even, to desire to see that forgiveness offered to our fellow broken sinners around us. Lord, use us for your glory, for your power. Lord, I would also just pray at, at the end here that you would keep us from sin. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, Lord, Romans 6, 6 still stands. You'll keep us from sin. Help us use that, the power of our forgiveness, the power of our reconciliation, that we can use that to run from the sin and the brokenness that is inside of us because of this body of death that, that we live in. Lord, help us to desire a, a, a true and a, and a right relationship with you. And Lord, use us just as each individual man as a witness and a testimony to your great grace. Just be with us for the rest of the night. Thank you again for all those who have been involved in making this weekend so great. Um, bless this food to our bodies. In your son's name, amen.